It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! And the crowd goes wild with today's special guest, Andrea Torsha. Yeah! All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, in the chat room. Welcome, Andrea. Great to have you on the show, finally. I know. Um, I've been here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Andrea used to work at Taxi years ago, and I used to always say, come on, do a Taxi TV with me. And she was always afraid to do it for some reason. Probably didn't want to sit that close to me, but now we're separated by 10 miles and, and some wires. Um, I also want to let you guys know, we have... we check the tech out over the weekend. We were checking the tech out for the last half hour. And for some reason, Andrea's Wi-Fi, which has full bars, just keeps crapping out. So if it gets really bad, what we'll do is just put her on speakerphone and we'll do it that way. But all that said, I want to let you know that I'm going to do a little bit of your bio first, because not everybody who's going to watch this show ultimately got the, the newsletter that went out or the email that went out. So when barely out of college, Andrea began working in A&R promotion and publicity at Chrysler slash EMI while learning the music publishing business. And then as creative manager at Rondor Music Publishing, she represented contemporary and classic catalogs, including the iconic songs of Jerry Goffin and Carole King. Wow, it doesn't get much better than that. And then as senior creative director at Zamba Music Publishing, she plays songs, connected writers and artists, and facilitated a roster with Britney Spears, the Backstreet, Backstreet Boys, Macy Gray, and Justin Timberlake. Uh, at Universal Music Publishing, she was named Senior Director of Creative, and she formulated relationships for Ron Nephew Feimster. How is Ron? Have you talked to him recently? He's so good, yeah. Great. Um, and Harvey Mason Jr., who's a big damn deal in the industry, and Lamont Dozier, who is, uh, Andrea is like family with him, and I adore him having had him at the road rally, I think two or three times incredibly nice man and an amazing songwriter and then her valuable industry experience led her to the appointment of vice president of a and r for taxi where andrea helped achieve multiple label film and television and commercial placements for the company's songwriters then she was tapped as vice president of creative with razor and time music publishing uh, out of new york although she was here on the west coast she worked with the company's multiple format catalogs while guiding creative input and fostering partnerships both domestically and internationally. Then, after that, uh, she had two long-term consulting jobs with Pop Powerhouse Rock Mafia. You guys met them at the, at the road rally, and that was thank you to Andrea for hooking me up with them. Um, and then 1111 Music, uh, is that how, what, how David called it? It was 1111? Yeah. Not one 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 one. Eleven Eleven Universal Music Publishing, a co-venture with sixteen-time Grammy winner David Foster, that preceded her tenure as VP uh, with the U.S. division of the Japanese company Avex. Um, Andrea exploited a diverse roster ranging from legendary Burt Bacharach to her signee Tommy Brown, songwriter producer Tommy Brown, whose number one Billboard debuts included Thank You Next seven, and Seven Rings for Ariana Grande, plus songs and productions for Juice Wild, Megan Trainer, and many others. It was at AVEX that Andrea signed the attire, sparking their transformation into the modern pop duo. Uh, and post-AVEX, she continued the artist development process as co-founder and senior VP of creative at Base Station Media. Welcome once again, Andrea. 
<laughs> and the crowd goes wild. Anyway, uh, I I'm excited to have you on the show because I've known you well for, I don't know, gosh, it's been like, yeah, like 12 years or more, I think, at this point. Yeah. Um, and I knew about Andrea for many years before that. We had a lot of friends in common, though we had never actually met face-to-face. -face. Then we met each other, and I think I speak for both of us, that it was the mutual fan club, like literally five minutes into the first meeting. And I was thrilled to have her come on board here. Um, and I'm going to start by asking you the question I always ask virtually every guest, which is, did you grow up in a musical household? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So with that, I, I want to mention the fact that, which was in the letter, um, in the email that went out. Where the hell did I put the list of all your... Okay. Well, her dad, I can't believe I printed that thing out and now I don't know where it is. Anyway, it's probably on my couch over there, 20 feet away. Um, Andrea's dad is legendary record producer uh, Denny Deontay, who I, I think I told you this once, as a youngster, a 19, 20-year-old growing up in the industry, I mean, you know, starting out at Criteria, I would read Recording Engineer Producer Magazine. There were two people that I always looked at and admired their work and the people they got to work with. One was Michael Lloyd and the other one was your dad. So, yeah, and I was really thrilled. One year, um, Andrea got her dad, Denny, to come to the road rally and be on a panel, and he and I, I think I, uh, maybe he walked out and went, God, that Lasco guy's an idiot, but I think we got along pretty well. <laughs> anyway, um, so who were some of the people that uh, you got to meet in music, you got to help your dad audition? You know, tell us about that whole thing, growing up in that kind of household. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was pretty amazing, I think, especially because I was so into music. I, I was born loving music. Um, my brothers were sort of more into, like, video games and movies, and I was always the music kid. So I spent a lot of time with my dad. He would bring demos home every week, and you know, we put our headphones on, and we would listen. And back then, a demo truly was like a piano, vocal, or guitar vocal, completely out of tune. There was no yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I well, back then I met like Bill Withers and Paul Anka and Johnny Mathis and Barbara Streisand and you know Neil Diamond and Julio Iglesias and BB King and just you know Bobby Brown. Um, just there were so many of them. Um, Henry Mancini. Uh, so I, I was lucky because I grew up, you know, meeting and listening to some of the greatest, um, you know artists and songwriters, really. I, I, I know that you, somewhere in your bio or somewhere online, and I already knew this anyway, that when you were a kid, like a, a fairly young kid, 9, 10, 11 years old, that, you know, your dad would bring home a box of cassettes and you would sit there and listen to the stuff. Um, and at some point you started, and I guess you learned this from your dad, some of it may have been intuitive, but you could say, well, you know, the chorus doesn't pop enough or the song needs a bridge. Um, do you remember how old you were when, when it started to really sink in that there were good songs there were, and there were great songs and there were bad songs when you could determine what was good versus great and what made something good versus great? Absolutely. I mean, I, I grew up going to the studio with my dad, um, literally with like Barbies in the corner. And um, also, I'd like to, you know, spend my Saturday nights 
So I, I, what I learned from my dad, I mean, there were so many things I learned, which was like song structure and, you know, melody not strong enough in the chorus or it took too long to get to a chorus. Right. Um, the importance of a bridge. I sort of like, I've always been a stickler with that with my own writers. Um, I think I, I learned so much about a song because demos back then didn't sound like records. So I, I heard the process from this sort of, you know, bones, you know, bone skeletal, um, you know, demo. And yeah. then hearing it, you know, watching my dad go to the studio and hire musicians and, and you know, put an artist on it and just hearing the evolution of the song. So it just taught me how to be able to hear the hit um, within the song and not so much focus on production. Unfortunately, the majority of the music business isn't, you know, A&Rs are not like that, but right. he really taught me how to identify. And it's really, is it a verse somebody can relate to? Does it make them feel something? Can you sing the melody back, you know, hours later? Um, does it make you feel something inside, really? I, how did that feel the first time your dad turned to you and said, what do you think, Andrea? <laughs> I mean, did you like... I was pretty damn opinionated, so he probably didn't even have to ask. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, but you are well known for having good taste, so there you go. Um, you. you know, maybe some of it's genetic, other is environmental, but you've got it, and you certainly have a reputation. That's what I knew about you before I ever met you, um, and I think it was actually Shirelli that sealed the deal for me. Um, Rob Shirelli is a good friend of Andrea's as well, and he he said, "Do you know Andrea?" And I said, "You know, we've never met, but we've got friends in common. I certainly know about her." And he said, "Damn, that girl's got good ears." <laughs> Aww, nice. Yeah, it's not even sexist either. You know, it's like, wow, she's <laughs> she's got awesome ears. <laughs> um, did I mean? I would have been either blown away or jaded or something. I mean, to you know, not just like meet how you doing, Barbara Streisand or Neil Diamond or people like that, but like be around them. You know, when you're hanging out in the control room, even though you're over in the corner doing what you're doing, it's still for most people it would be breathtaking that like i can't believe i'm in the same room with barbara streisand or neil diamond and, and you were probably just like another day your dad could have been a dry cleaner you know yeah no i think because it was just a part of my everyday life and then my and my dad always he didn't make a big deal about it you know they're just people like i even remember when my dad would be cutting vocals he wouldn't actually let me in the studio yeah. Um, because he would say like, well, he's pretty blunt, but he'd be like, it's like when you're taking a dump and someone's watching. <laughs> <So> <laughs> That's your dad. <laughs> so, um, so, but I, you know, I, so I guess what I got from that is that they're human too. They're people too. You know, they have insecurities. They don't want to be judged. So um, that just happened to be their job. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. Um, I'm hearing a little bit of voice feedback, and I'm not sure where that's coming from, but your phone is off, right? Your phone's off, my phone's off. So, all right, well, it's not so bad. Um, on it, like it's off. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, so 
were there times that you heard a song that you were let's i'm just going to pull an age out let's say you're 14 15 16 years old you'd been around this stuff for years were there ever times where you heard a song and went dad that one's a smash hit that's a smash hit and then it didn't get cut um did you experience the the high of you know discovering something great and the low of watching it just end up in the dumper somewhere from when he was doing records yeah yeah he actually he had signed this um duo funny enough they were called the stabilizers and, <laughs> you know, great, but they had amazing they had amazing songs so yeah. i was surprised that they didn't take off the way they should have yeah. Um, and then as a professional, did you, how many times in your life uh, have you heard something that you would like fall on a sword for, walk into the president of the label or the publishing company and go, this is a friggin' hit, and then it didn't get signed? Oh, I've definitely pitched songs over and over again that I know are hits, and like I just could not get them cut, um, for yeah. sure. For sure, which is always heartbreaking, and it's normally because it didn't have a big enough name on the producer or on the writer. Um, but there's still songs that I remember to this day that I could sing to you that I know are smash. I won't sing it for you, but that I know Thank are smash. <laughs> in, in all the years we've known each other, I don't think you've ever sung, and I'm I'm grateful for that. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. Be famous before I went into the business on the business side of things. I was going to be a, I wanted to be a recording artist and have my dad produce me. But then I became an insecure teenager, so I said, forget it. Um, it's funny. I've had this conversation with Ken Calais about his daughter, Colby. And she still, to this day, lets him uh, produce her. And I said, really? That's not a problem? You know, it's like my daughters, like, if they were making a record, not that they are, but if they were, they would, like, want me as far away as possible from that room. <laughs> um, where Do you remember the first time that you were instrumental in getting a song cut or getting an artist signed, and the first time you heard it on the radio, do you still remember like where you were and all that stuff? It was a song for NSYNC. Yeah. And um, a bunch of the, the Germans came in from the label, and NSYNC wasn't, they were just taking off. But okay. funny enough, it was, they were working on the next record or they were looking for songs and I had pitched this song to them um, and I they cut it and it was in one of those meetings where you're at a round table and I it was one of my very first scary meetings you know and it was like, yeah. like I love this song and they loved it and they cut it and it it actually went on some like big Pokemon soundtrack and it was like in a movie um, but that was my first kind of big cut cut um and then i followed a lot of i had international first i had like huge cuts with this like french artist named ophelia winter so i sort of started doing you know those came first but yeah i always remember but nsync was the first one i heard on the radio here and i was crying were you I alone one on kiss fm were you alone in the car when it came on the radio no i was with an ex-boyfriend oh <laughs> so he was an ex-boyfriend and you were still in the car with him or he was about to become an ex-boyfriend? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> did, his, did his first name start with an M? 
I know exactly who you're talking about. Sorry, folks. We're going to keep that a secret, a little inside baseball. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I remember first thing I ever worked on that hit the radio was Firefalls, You Are the Woman, and my parents had just picked me up from O'Hare Airport in Chicago, and we were in the car on Interstate 80, driving by the town of Joliet, Illinois, and You Are the Woman came on the radio, and I'm like freaking out. I worked on that. I worked on that. My parents like, what? So, huh? They didn't get it at all, and I felt so alone, like I had nobody there to share that moment with. Kind of a bummer. So I'm glad you were there with your boyfriend with the M because I know, you know, he's a, yeah, he's an industry person, so he knows. Um, was there ever one that you went to bat for? A song that you went to bat for and just like, come on, you got to cut this, you got to cut it, and they cut it, and it was a stiff, and you were like, oh my god, you had to do the walk of shame. No, you know, I've never had a stiff of a song that I I like loved and believed in, but I did. I did sign a girl who wrote a song called If I Were a Boy when I was at Universal. Um, E.C. Jean wrote a song called If I Were a Boy. And Beyonce cut the song. And right. um, it was amazing, but it did not blow up. Like, they, they put it out and real quick went to something else. So um, it just didn't, I thought it was going to be this, like, huge radio smash. And it, yeah. it didn't, I don't think it had it the moment it deserved because I loved that song. Remember, she was a taxi member, and we all knew that something was going to happen for that girl because she had all the right stuff. She had the work ethic. She had the talent. She had the, the right attitude. She was not a quitter. And then she wrote it with, to who was it, uh, Toby Gad? Uh, what was his name? And, and I think the story was they were in a writing meeting in New York, and they went out of the apartment building, walking down the street to go grab some pizza or something. And she said, man, if I were a guy, if I were a boy, that would never happen. And they went ding, 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 ran right back up to the apartment and wrote the song. Did I get that right? It's exactly true. I think either a guy was either like eating some big ass piece of pizza and like, you know, <laughs> all of the girls are always like, you know, trying to keep our weight down. And she's like, if I were a boy, I'd be able to, you know, I eat four pizzas. Um, so, yeah. But I loved that song, so. I got to say, she did it at the Road Rally one year, and I honestly liked her version of it better than Beyonce's version. Yeah, for sure. I think it's her story. And, and she she brought a little grit to it, you know? Um, it felt more honest and authentic with her doing it versus Beyonce it was just a little too Beyonce. refined and polished or something, yeah. Interesting. God, I'd forgotten about that song. Such a great song. I um, all right. So you got your first job in the industry uh, back at, what was it, uh, Chrysalis EMI. You'd come out of training with your dad, and now you've got a job, and you're working within the walls of the industry. Was it really hard to keep your mouth shut because you weren't at that level yet where people were going, so what do you think, Andrea? Uh, were you, like, biting your lip till it was dripping blood down your chin? You know, sometimes, but I, I worked for the A&R guy that I worked for was actually pretty inclusive. Oh. Um, and he would, you know, I think it's, I do it with my own children. I think it's really smart when you utilize the younger generation. Um, and so, you know, I was just like young, you know, girl, and plus he knew I had, you know, been raised by an A&R guy. So, um, 
he would actually we would like listen to demos together funny enough wow um, yeah so i didn't really feel that way so much and you know i was i was not spoiled growing up you know and i did all sorts of like i bagged groceries and you know i folded wow. and you know my parents were definitely one of like you're gonna work and you know i picked up the dog poop and i did a lot of the laundry so i was i was sort of you know i was used to you know working my way you know working towards something and so starting at the bottom i was just so happy to have a job i mean i pretty much made like no money i had multiple roommates um but i was just so i felt so grateful to have a job that in an industry that i loved i felt super lucky um yeah, knowing your dad, it's not like we're besties or anything, but you know, I've spoken to him on the phone a couple of times, hung out with him at the rally a little bit. He's definitely um, like, you're gonna work for what you get kind of guy. So I can't imagine. He's like, here's my little princess. Let's buy you a Corvette for your 16th birthday. I have a Volvo Green Station wagon. That's awesome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are far more spoiled. And I was like, I drove. They're like, that was in the olden days. I'm like, oh. That's so funny. Um, okay, let's talk about how the job of a publisher has changed over time because I'm gonna let you tell it. I'm not gonna tell it and then say, am I right? But um, how has the job changed from- I'm not interrupting you, but I'm interrupting you. My battery is dying at a, like a fast pace. So I'm gonna put oh, wow. it on the floor. Okay. So everybody's really gonna get to, let me make sure it's charging. Yes. Hi. Now we're on Hi. The floor. <laughs> Perfect. I've got to say, twelve years of doing taxi TV, I've never had a guest on the floor before. Awesome. Well, you should have had me. me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's good. It's a good thing you vacuum. Of battery. So, um, <laughs> go ahead. I'm afraid if you shut the door, we'll lose the Wi-Fi. So far, so good. <laughs> I know. It's not, yeah, we're good. So how has the job of being a publisher or how has the publishing industry changed from when you first got into the industry to where it's at today? You know, I think when I first got into the industry, it was primarily pitching songs um, because there were, I feel like there were a lot more opportunities to get songs cut mm -hmm. by outside songs because not it's almost like every now artists are so aware of like publishing income. So now every artist is a writer as well. So I think it was, you know, primarily pitching songs and yes, you set up co-writes. Um, but I, I feel like it was mostly that was, you know, the, the job. I feel like over the years it's, you know, it becomes a lot of my writers didn't even end up having managers because you almost take on the role of being a manager. There's a lot more development involved. There's a lot more, um, there's a lot more guidance. You know, it's really working on getting your, getting your um, songwriter with an artist or developing them as an artist. Like I have a lot more writers that are actually artists than before. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just not your, it's just not this easy pitching anymore. Now it's like, do you have a social media account? Are you, you know, working yourself on these horrible platforms like TikTok and Instagram? And so I just think there's a lot, it's a lot more now than I, I think it used to be. I have to work a lot harder now to get a cut. And I think my first year as a publisher, I had 36 cuts in my first year. Wow. 
Yeah, that was my Did point. you say 36 cuts? 46 cuts, yeah. I'm sorry, 46 or 36? 36. Okay, 36. that's still a yeah. ton. And am I remembering this correctly, that about that time period, a writer would get signed to a staff writer deal typically, um, and, and the publishing company would go, okay, well, this writer, let's, there were kind of two scenarios. One, you were an artist that got signed and they knew the record was likely to come out. And if you were also a writer, then wow, we're gonna make mechanicals, especially if they sell a lot of records. Um, and they've got a label behind them pushing the songs to radio so we could make a lot of performance money, blah, blah, blah. And the other way was that you were just a, a plain songwriter, purely a songwriter, and you impressed the, the people at the publishing company. Somebody like you in the creative department would go to bat for that writer, convince the president of the publishing company or maybe the VP who is above you, we need to sign this writer. They say yes. And then if I remember they were obligated for like 12 songs that they wrote solo a year and they had to meet with your approval like yes yeah. we'll count this as one of your 12. you had like a minimum delivery requirement commitment you had a minimum like release commitment the deals back then were like terrible really um and and what were some typical advances for a writer when they signed you know not somebody who came with a pedigree but somebody who was like new at the game, but really, really good in, in the publishing company, wanted him or her, you know, was the money decent at least, enough to keep them alive while they were writing? Depends. I mean, if they had like no pipeline, you maybe like, I saw some as, I mean, it also depends upon the company, but I saw some as low as like 30,000, maybe 50,000. Um, then of course they would be higher if, you know, they, they were more established. It's right, like if they'd had a previous like, cut with like, somebody. It was like less money, and then publishing deals got like really kind of big and made no sense, which still happens sometimes now when there's a lot of like competition. When multiple yeah. companies are interested, then you're just like stupid paying money that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, so they used to be far smaller, but I think that a writer was able to make more money back then too because there was there were more opportunities to get cuts. And there weren't five or six other writers on, on the song. Oh, yeah. I, That's my least favorite, is when there's like 12 writers on a song. Like, thank I, you for my 2%. <laughs> I don't know if I knew you back then, but I remember going to the ASCAP Awards one year, I think with Ralph Murphy and my wife, Deborah, and I was astonished. I knew it was, this is the way it was, but I was still astonished. Every time somebody won an award, there'd be like six to 10 people on the stage. And all I could think of is, cause I'm a business guy, you know, all I could think of is how much is 12% of that? You know, if the publisher's getting half of the publisher's share, if it's a co-pub deal. Yeah, and they're making 12% each of, of just half of the publisher's share, you know, unless you have, a mega hit you're not going to make enough money to live next year yeah i think there was a time when like before all the streaming um when there was physical copies you know mm. you're making more money better money um but yeah i mean especially now i it's really sad because you see writers that even if they have a decent percentage of a, a crop it takes a long time to make money yeah royalties to make anything worth anything at this point it's rough I, I feel for the writer and producer and artist of today are there still staff writer deals out there for somebody who doesn't come with any sort of 
pedigree or connection or anything in the pipeline. If if you if you were at our house for a barbecue this weekend and somebody walked up and said, oh, my daughter's a songwriter, and I bet that's never happened before, yeah. uh, and they handed you a CD or I'm driving you, listen to it in the car on the way home, which I'm sure would be your first order of priority. Um, and you just like were, holy crap, this is amazing. This kid is a, you know, a gifted writer. Um, can you walk that person into a publishing company and still get them a deal today? I can. <laughs> I know you can. In in general, can can yeah. No, yeah. I, if you can find an advocate, yeah. You know, like even like the attire. I mean, when I signed them, they, I mean, they had yes, they had buzz going on, but they don't they don't have one cut. You know, they yeah. Their demos were liter were demos. I mean, they didn't even have. I think they didn't even have an Instagram. I don't think at the time when I signed them. So. But I was like, holy shit, moles! Like, this is amazing. Oh, am I allowed to crash the car? <laughs> now you are. It's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me, I it, for me that doesn't matter. For me, it's, if if someone's amazing, I don't really care. And there are those of us out there still. Not as many that are you know as they want to take the risk because it's it's a lot easier to sign an artist or a producer or a writer that has a lot of activity. And if they don't do well, you could say, well, I mean, look, they had all this coming in. Um, then to say, you know, I took a shot on somebody that had nothing. But um, everybody had nothing at some point. Uh you're absolutely right. And by the way, thank you for uh, hooking me up with Greg, uh, whose last name is Schilling. Now, I kept calling him Schiller on the show. But Andrea introduced us to him here at Taxi and uh, suggested that he might be a good guest. And he was a great guest. He's, he's charming, articulate, great work ethic. I mean, he's a package. He really is. He, he deserves everything that you saw in him that hopefully will bring him fame and fortune. Um, me yeah let's see I'm reading my own question here so i can understand it better i get i guess this is part and parcel to what we just talked about but i get asked this question all the time by taxi members and other people that i meet can somebody still write a song like an acoustic guitar vocal demo or a piano vocal demo is there any hope of getting that cut or do you need a demo that's damn near a record your lyric and your melody are so strong and your vocal if you are off key then just don't even bother but if 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 what you've got is top notch and that is your a guitar piano vocal but if, if your lyric and your melody and your vocal are strong then yes i if like that that than a poorly dated produced track to be very honest with we hear a lot of that. We'll talk about that. I think I wrote a question about that. Uh, let's talk about the vocal for a minute. Um, I get that follow-up question fairly frequently. It's like, well, why does my vocal matter? They know it's a demo. It's not like they're going to put it on TV or put it out as a record. And my answer is because you've got to sell it. Your job is to make them just be cringing that they want to cut this song. I love it. I love it. And hopefully that happens before you're even done with the first chorus. Um, I'm, I'm not nuts, right? No, you're 100% correct. You want to, it's like if you will go to watch a movie and the acting is terrible. You know, I mean, it doesn't right. 
far if the storyline is good. It's like, oh my God, this acting is freaking awful. Um, or you can't hear the acting, you know? So yeah, you have to, your vocal has to be on point. Even if you're not Mariah Carey, you're, you still have to, you know, be on key, your pitch, you know, you can't, I mean, I've heard demos that they're painful to listen to. So um, that's not the way to go. <laughs> um, writer camps, uh, I mean, maybe there are other terms for it, but I know it as a writer camp. It seems like virtually everything that gets cut, at least the vast majority comes out of a camp. Can you tell our viewers what a camp is, how maybe camps get formed? Do they, can you be in multiple camps as a writer or a producer, or is it just like, I know this guy, I know that girl, I know this artist, and you can be in multiples. Can you talk about camps? <laughs> so when you say a writer camp, because so, a lot, what I'm thinking when you say writer camp, like, oh, there's a BB Rex, a writer camp. Like right. a writing, like, do you, are you talking about a writing camp for a specific artist project, or just like a, two producers in a top liner that have called themselves now a camp and they write everything together? It can go bo both ways. So make the distinction. Explain them both, which okay, you so just a, did. <laughs> a writing camp is um, basically like um, there's one that's being put together right now by this, um, you know, marketing company, which is interesting. But is normally when when we hear that an artist is, you know, looking for songs to um, to record for their next album. And it's usually when they're down to the wire and they don't have the single. Right. So that's usually when like a BMG or a Universal or a Pulse or whoever just says, hey, let's put together a writing camp and let's just get a bunch of our writers to write a song you know, multiple songs and just like see if any of them work for, you know, fill in the blank, BB Rexa. And then they go and they pitch it to the A&R. A lot of times you will get the label involved and say, hey, you know, so-and-so we're putting a writing camp together. You know, what are you specifically looking for? Um, a lot of the times there's a whole bunch of songs written that nothing happens with. Um, but every now and again, something does, but Sometimes it's an exercise in futility, but if there's ever a writing camp that you're in, asked to participate in, I think it's um, a good idea. Um, do they ever invite the artists that they're writing for into the camp because they get some buy-in by the artist who feels like they've been a part of the process, so it ups the, the shot of that song getting cut? Sometimes that does actually happen. Um, and those are the better ones to be involved in, but usually those are for the top tier producer writers that are probably already getting cuts on those albums anyway. Um, and then the, the writing camps, that's usually just if, you know, a couple top liners and a producer or a couple producers and a top liner, you know, they write together a few times and they just have a really good synergy and chemistry. So they give themselves a name and they become, you know, I, I wish I can think of one right now. I don't see that quite as much. Um, I don't see that quite as much, but it's still, you know, sort of a thing, but I like to put my writers with all sorts of different producers and like even, you know, the attire, even though they can write a hundred percent of a song, I still think it's cool to like, I've just set them up on a bunch of co-writes with other producers 
because I think it's good just to, um, you know, see what else they can come up with because you get inspiration from other from other people. So sometimes I don't right. think it's necessary to write with the same people all the time. So as a publisher, if you've signed a writer, let's take Gregory Schilling uh, as an example of this. Um, I would imagine that you meet with him fairly regularly. You listen to what he's got. You hear stuff that's in very raw state to maybe medium developed. Um, you give some feedback and you might be inspired to say, oh, this would be good. You know what? This, you could take this to the next level if you wrote with somebody that I've known for a few years, I think would be a good match for you. You just put them together, they get together and write. Um, what happens if it doesn't gel and now you've got a song that started out as just Greg Schilling and then John Doe is also added to it as a writer, but now Greg wants to take it back, strip it back to the way he had it so that he could finish it on his own or maybe co-write with other people. Right. What happens to the version that was written with that first person you matched him up with? Is it just... It just goes bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Depends. If, if, if Greg comes in with, you know, say like a first verse and a hook, but yeah. there needs to be, you know, if he comes in with a finished, almost a finished song and the, and the, I just put him with a producer who just puts a track underneath it, then it's like, you know, it, you take your track, we're going to take our top line and let's go our separate ways. If for some, if, if it just so happened that producer maybe helped inspire part of a second verse or a bridge, and you can say, okay, you know, you take your track, but you helped inspire my bridge. So I'm going to give you, you know, 7% of the publishing of the song. So, you know, you have to share if somebody did help, you know, inspire, you know, you in some way or help co-write a portion of the top line. But if, you, if it's literally like you did the track and I did the lyric melody and I'm not using the track, then you just take it and move, move on. It's interesting that you threw out 7% because one of the questions that we get a lot at Taxi is how do we divvy up um, co-writes? And our answer is generally if there are three people in the room, it's a three-way unless there's an extenuating cir circumstance and you just ex gave us a great example of what one would be. Uh, so what happens if you say to the person who largely inspired the bridge, which is making a great contribution to the song. You know what, I feel like you should get something. So I'm gonna give you 7% uh, on this. And they go, no, I want more. <laughs> what happens then? Well, you know, what's great, what I would say in that case, you know, Greg would probably already have in his voice notes or somewhere that had, you know, what he came in with. So there would be, you know, between publishers, there would be a discussion. Um, and if that person wouldn't back down, then, you know, someone like Greg could say, okay, you know what, I'm just gonna totally rewrite that bridge. And like, now you get nothing. And <laughs> a, lot time, a lot of the time, exactly. A lot of times if that's the case, then they'll be like, okay, I'll take the, you know, 7%. Right, right. Better to have 7% of something than nothing yeah. of nothing. That siren on your end or mine? I, it's out in the parking lot here. My dog's bark, sorry. Wow. <laughs> they can hear it? Amazing. 
Yeah, there's some guy that's got a, you know, like classic Los Angeles dude with a Porsche convertible that parks beneath my office window. And no matter when I do taxi TV, TV or an important Zoom meeting, he always picks that time to fire up the car and sit there and start answering texts while the car is idling below me. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so used to be back in the olden days that if you set up a couple of writers to write together, that they generally would meet at one person's house or another, or maybe they'd even go to a writing room at the publishing company or something, maybe even a Starbucks, who the hell knows, but they would be face to face. Yeah. Uh, and, and then as Zoom became a thing, it became more you know, collaborative via wire. And then COVID came along, which forced everybody to do it uh, in a Zoom state. Uh, I'm getting that it really hasn't hurt the energy much. The people I know that are writers say, yeah, you know, it's working out pretty well. Um, what do you hear on the street from your people as far as them working on Zoom or whatever? I, I think that everybody has learned to adapt. Nobody like totally liked it at first. Right. I think if it's somebody you've already written with before and you are, have like a connection with them, then it's not the biggest deal in the world, you know, like, I think sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get it going creatively when it's you're like, hi, meeting over Zoom, you know, you're <laughs> writing over Zoom. Can I offer you a drink? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, everyone, writers are starting to adapt. But at the same time, I also know, I hear from a lot of writers and producers like, oh, you know, I'm doing in person again. So I, I wow. think it's first choice, um, unless they're completely freaked out of over you know the virus but um you know i, I think it's a, a, a lot of writers have worked together east coast west coast for years yeah. now so it's been being done but um i think that if a writer has a choice the creative energy in the room is always the first choice even for me i prefer in-person meetings you know like even you know it was very interesting signing an artist to a record label when I truly haven't even met anybody in person. It's super wow. weird. Yeah, everything has been like on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. Um, I'm going to give a shameless plug to a company that I'm pretty sure is going to be a sponsor at this year's Road Rally, and it's called Session Wire, and yeah. it is built specifically for musicians to collaborate in real time with no delay, with super high quality video and like CD quality audio. Um, some engineers and mixers are starting to use it where they're doing a mix session with their clients sitting like with a pair of NS10s a thousand miles away, listening to the mix in real time as it happens. So if, if those of you watching the show or Andrea, any of your writers want a better way to do like a Zoom thing, but just better, sessionwire.com. It's very, very cool. I'm not thoroughly versed in it yet, but when we spoke like a week ago, um, I went and spent an hour on the website and went, wow, this is the real deal. So, um, cool. yeah. Okay, so now you've got um, a new writer. Let's say we've got somebody who's been paying attention. They've been working on their craft for years. They didn't think they came out of their mommy's tummy, born a genius. They realize that it's a craft, it's an art, and it takes a lot of work. And they've gotten there. They're, they're at the point where, like, 
I know you well enough that any time I would send you something and say, I'm sending you something, you know I wouldn't burn a bridge by abusing that privilege or friendship. Um, and you hear them, they got there through a connection in a relationship. What if they don't have that? What if they're in, you know, Peoria, Illinois, and they've got those chops? How, how do they get noticed? Um, is this for, for an artist? Uh, for a writer or an artist. Well, I think as much as I, you know, don't like social media, I, I think that um, I would say market the hell out of yourself, whether you're a writer, whether you're a producer, like on TikTok, there's like producer talk, there's songwriter talk, you know, um, a lot of artists are, are kind of blowing themselves up on that platform. Um, and it's like the wild, wild west makes no sense why some of these things go crazy and some don't. But, you know, I think between like, you can um, release stuff independently, you know, for almost nothing. Um, I, I think it's, you know, SoundCloud, it's TikTok, it's, it's all those things. I just say you have to really market the hell out of yourself because I see what we have to go through having, you know, having an artist with, you know, friggin' hit songs and a label and money. It's, it's not easy it, because there's, I don't remember how many songs are released a week, but it's frightening yeah. um, how many there are now. And that's the ones that are being released, you know, through labels. And then you have, you know, all these independent things going. So I would just say you really have to market yourself. Constantly. Which, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people go, look, you know, I don't want to do the business stuff. I'm a creative and they're dooming themselves to failure because on one hand, the internet gives you all these options. And if yeah. you're willing, well, you know what? At the time when, well, I was probably ahead of you by a decade growing up in the industry, as it were. Um, there was always that one or 2% factor. The people who really worked on their songcraft, really worked on playing clubs. Then they would do concentric circles. First, every club within 10 miles, and they would play it at least once a month. Then every club within 50 miles, play it at least once a month. Uh, and then going to the town that the club was in the day before and putting up posters on telephone poles, calling local radio, doing interviews, doing anything they could to saturate that market and eventually because all a and r people said if you're doing the right stuff i'll hear about you and that was pretty true um and it's the same thing now it's that same one percent that are willing to work that hard using social media that will break through and the other 99 percent are going i don't understand i set up an instagram account i set up a TikTok account I post something on there like at least once a day <laughs> and and they wonder why the world hasn't discovered them. Yeah, it's multiple posts daily. It's, you know, it's, a, it's like what I've always told my writers, my artists, like it's, you know, the music business, but it, it's the, it's the business of music. So you, you have to, it's not just, you know, sitting in your studio and writing songs for you and your mom and your sisters and your best friends to hear. So yeah. You have to, um, that's that's the hard, the writing the songs, you know, if you're gifted and a naturally creative person, that's like the easy, warm and fuzzy part. It, but it's like what you do after that. Otherwise, you're going to have thousands of really great songs that nobody's going to hear. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I heard a number, crazy number, like 
I could be totally wrong, but I want to say 210,000 songs, new songs get uploaded to one, one form of you know social media somewhere in the internet a day, yeah, All, you know, that's globally. It's some crazy number. That's why I'm like, well, you've got to really, you know, just live and breathe and eat and you know what this life. Because <laughs> that's why, you know, when I get these like young, you know, starry-eyed, you know, kids are like, I want to be a songwriter, I want to be an artist or a producer, I'm like, oh God. And I understand that, you know, when it's your calling and when you're you're meant to do this, you're meant to do this. But I, it's 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 rough. It can be very rough. But no, if you if you go and watch any like behind the music or read any books, you know, very very. I don't know if there's one artist, any legendary artist or successful artist band, whatever that it was like this. You know, right? They all like had deals that. You know the labels that like, drop them and then single you know so it there's usually there's a there's a long windy bumpy curvy road to success it doesn't otherwise you're a one-hit wonder so i would rather the long curvy bumpy you know somewhat hard road for success than just to have one hit yeah you're also prepping yourself because when that first hit does take off if you're lucky enough to have that happen then you've got to have the sophomore release. And, and that's harder because you're probably out touring to support the record under normal circumstances. Um, and, and the pressure's on. You, you get 10 years to write your first song and then you know 10 weeks to write your next hit. It's true. That's why I don't stop writing either. You know, like I know for the attire, you know, we've got as much as, you know, we have album one pretty much done. We also have almost half of album Two, three quarters of album two done wow. and who, and they're but they'll continue to continue to write i always am like i didn't sign you because i think you already wrote your best songs keep going <laughs> <laughs> i was shocked to find out i'm not going to say where he lives or where i live but i was shocked to find out greg and i live very close to each other he's kind of in the middle between the two of us i know you know, speak, speaking of which, there's a young girl, you probably know who she is, I won't mention her name, but she was the one time, uh, a friend of a friend of a friend, and she was growing up in our general neck of the woods, probably within a two mile circumference or radius of our house, and her mom knew a friend of my wife or something, and they got to me, and, and can we bring her into the office, she writes great songs. I almost fell out of my chair. This kid wrote great songs and she was about 14 or 15 years old. And she had the total work ethic. You know, she worked at all day. She was skipping school to stay home and write songs. She did live it, breathe it, and you know what it. And um, she eventually did get noticed by somebody somewhere. She did get a development deal. And then I think she signed a deal and was writing with big writers and with all that nothing ever happened it didn't take off and it broke my heart because she did everything right if there was anybody who deserved it because she worked for it and and i think she's still signed and still working on it but yeah i hope and that's the case you had like multiple record deals and they kept going back and having her you know write songs and write songs and write songs and the single that they, the first single she ever put out was the single she was first signed on. So, I mean, that happened, was fallen. So like, maybe she just hasn't had her moment yet. 
Because it's all, you know, in the timing when it's meant to be, I think, you know? Yeah. Even like the guys having like, like I don't know, three, two or three deals before this one. But, you know, and that one, you know, one deal didn't work out, then the label folded, and now they have this one, which, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's meant to be when it's meant to be. And for some people, yeah. maybe like, if that just, as much as you want, that maybe it's just not your calling, you know, so there was something else for her to do. Who knows? But I remember. Sorry, say it again, I stepped on you. You know, it doesn't, sometimes it, there's a lot of sad stories. Like yeah. Um, there was a period years ago at Taxi where Doug Minnick and I and my then partner in the company managed an act for a while because they couldn't find, they were meeting, they got um, signed to a major label, uh, it was MCA Records, and they, oh, what was his name, Mitch at MCA, A&R guy, anyway. I remember he drove a green Defender 90, Land Rover Defender 90. I loved his car, it was a true classic. Anyway, uh, Mitch Brody, you probably remember him. So he was passionate about this band. He did all the right stuff as an A&R guy internally at the label to get all the departments excited. And then the label fired the head of radio promotion and they brought in a lady, brand new to the company. And the first thing out of her mouth was, I hate this band. And that was it. It was over. They would literally, I mean, it was looking really, really good. They were breaking right about the same time or got released right about the same time as Blink-182. Um, we would always run into them as we were going into the president's office. They were coming out. Um, and, and yeah, just a change in staff literally killed their career oh. in a minute. Oh, yeah, I know. It's There's so many of those stories and they're they're tragic, truly, because that is somebody's dream that just yeah. got rushed. Especially hurts when they really, truly deserve it because they did the homework, you know? So are today's, or yesterday's guitar, vocal, piano, vocal, songwriters, demo makers, are, are they top liners today? Is, is a top liner just them, basically? Yeah, I would say so. I would say that, you know, <clears throat> because that's really what the top liner is the lyric and the melody, so. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you have any sense who's in bigger demand or which uh, discipline is in bigger demand? Top liners versus track makers? Top liners. Interesting. Always, there's so many to do for. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, not taking away from you know the talent of producers because that look at I know producers that they're good and maybe they can get a song to like a B plus and then there's producers that they just have there's magic that they put into that track and they have vision so producers are incredibly important I'm not saying that they're not but it is much harder to find somebody who can write a, like a killer lyric and melody yeah that drives the song, you know. There's magic in that. Uh, and speaking of magic, uh, my first year, I'm sure I told you this story when you worked here, but my first year of working in the actual industry, I was an assistant engineer at Criteria Studios, and very early in my tenure there, I ran into Barry Gibb. We all knew each other because we'd see each other, you know, eating pizza in the lounges or crossing in the hallways, or maybe I'd be cleaning a toilet while he was standing at the urinal, whatever. Barry Gibb knew who I was. <laughs> and I, I passed him in the hallway one day and I said, 
Excuse me, Barry, what does it take to write a hit song? And he looked at me with this quizzical look on his face, like, you don't know this yet, you moron. And he just looked at me and he said, emotion, mate, and just walked away. And I went, wow, that's really deep. So he was right, of course, but I think a lot of songwriters who are early in their careers confuse emotion with emotional. They write very personal songs about their own story, which I understand, or their own source of pain or fear or confusion or longing or whatever. Songs, um, and I'm not saying these are rookies, these are obviously not rookies, but people like Adele, Billie Eilish, Olivia Rodrigo, kind of big emotional ballad types of songs. Yet my own personal observation is that there might be more hits that make it to radio and Spotify playlists that are beat-driven, up-tempo songs that are often filled with an attitude. If they're by a female, it's probably a sense of like female empowerment, I don't need you anymore, my boyfriend, or it's girls' night out, or whatever, whatever the topic is. Do you have any sense, maybe you know statistics, maybe it's just a visceral observation that, are you better off as a songwriter concentrating on writing the emotional ballad that really tugs at the heartstrings? Or should people concentrate more on great melody with lots of butt bumping beats in there or something? I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I can, I can tell you what I tell my straight up writer producers. Okay. I always say, go for the mid-tempo or the up-tempo because that's 10 out of 10 times what an A&R person is looking for. Because ballads, being that they're very personal, um, and they're a little bit easier for songwriters to write. So a lot of the times the ballads come from the artist. Um, and so, and for a ballad to be a radio single, I mean, ballads can be huge radio singles. I mean, right. absolutely, we both know that. Um, but I think that because they tend to be more personal, as a as a writer, you wouldn't really know what you couldn't put those specifics in there for an artist to write. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like, look at Diane Warren's done it a million times, but that's Diane Warren. Um, so that's what I always tell my writers if they're writing for an outside, if they want to get cut. So it's like, look, if you've got a ballad that is just amazing and it's so relatable, everybody who hears it wants to cry, then of course, you, I would 100% pitch it. But I just have found as a publisher when pitching and I work with the labels and management, that are, they already have the ballads because they're written by the artist. So, um, I always say go for those mid-tempos and up-tempos because they're harder to write, really, I think, you know? I have a, a good friend who's a hit songwriter, you know her, Cara Diaguardi, and, and yeah. she once described a writing session where the label sent over like a 15-year-old girl who was the artist, and Cara it, it can be very gracious in those situations. She said, so what would you like to write about today? And she goes, my dog and she had her dog in a little gucci bag you know can we write about my dog and kara i'm sure was like biting her lip gritting her teeth and probably turned the dog into an ex-boyfriend and then wrote a song about it um, I, 
I would imagine that that takes a whole other layer or level of craft to be able to take somebody else's vision as bad as it may be and then <laughs> turn yeah, turn turn that pile of steaming crap into something amazing. It's like wow. wow. We have to be real good. Yeah. We have to be really good at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love the dog. So she could do that. But that's hard. That's also what's hard when these there was a very strange period of time where all these like little young artists were getting signed. And that's right. exactly what happened. You know, they don't have life experience to really be, you know, it was hard to, to write it other than about their dog or their friends. And, you know, the, you know my, my parents suck. My boyfriend is awesome. Or he broke my heart. And my exactly. dog is my best friend. Exactly. I get it. <laughs> All right. So you have said, uh, I don't know, a hundred times in the years I've known you, dude, it always starts with a great song. And you and I agree. Everybody in the industry agrees on that. But you need a great artist to sell it. Um, I, I have heard great songs, like as you mentioned before, with a lackluster vocal that just undersold it. And it does make a difference. What does it take? What are the qualities that make a great artist? make a great artist yeah you know i think authenticity confidence not arrogance confidence um and i and i an identity knowing who you are as an artist I, it's not enough if you're pretty and you can sing you need to know who you are what you stand for what's your mission um you know of course you need to be able to sing, but even there's some, <laughs> but there's even some singers that aren't like amazing singers, but they just have a vibe and an energy, and you know, they walk in the room and you're like, oh shit, that's a that's a star right there, you know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, it's not always about the way you look. So there's there's a lot of really beautiful looking people. So it needs to be more than that. There's a lot of beautiful people that can sing. So it's really about you know. Even when I signed the attire, it's like, well, who are you guys? What do you stand for? You know, what's your, who is the attire? Um, I think it's really important knowing who you are. You're right. There are a lot of people. I, I really haven't ever had that thought. They're, all, they're almost a dime a dozen, especially in this town or any of the music centers. So, yeah, what is that thing that makes you that extra 5% better? And you're right. It, it's uniqueness because there are a lot of beautiful people yeah. who can sing exactly well wow. so it used to be that a and r people were the geniuses that paired a great song with a great artist um, and now it seems like publishers and even to some extent managers are kind of all in the mix everybody's on the team now making that happen whether it's bringing in the right producer to build the track or a lot of times something that didn't exist back when I, I was on that side of the glass was that vocal um, producers like I know Kara does a lot of vocal production somebody that just knows how to get a vocal delivery out of a, a great vocalist taking them to a level remember uh, my friend Marshall Altman I don't know if you yeah, yeah, of course. okay so Marshall always said at the road rally every year the floor is bad, the ceiling is great. Or no, the floor is bad, the ceiling is good of the ballroom, and the sun is great. Um, a vocal producer can take an artist's vocal performance 
to the sun. That's a talent. That's a gift. So how does that affect you as a publisher who's always been like directly involved? You're, you're right in there with all these people now feeling like they've got a piece of the action for putting stuff into the pot, stirring it up and making that magic. Does it get more complicated? Does it get weird? Like who, who was the genius that put that song with that artist together? Is it harder? Not really. Um, I mean, I was just actually talking to a manager today who's who manages artists that, you know, they're looking, they've had a lot of success, but the publishing's available and they're, you know, they're changing like record labels. And, and, and we were just having that conversation where it, it takes a village. Like it, it, it takes, it's, even as a manager, I, I need help from the, the other publishers. I need help from the label, you know, um, so I actually think it's it's a benefit. And the greatest thing is when you do have a team, the manager, the worst is when, you, when you're the only one and nobody else does anything. You know, it's like, oh. <laughs> but they will take the credit in the end after you do all the uh, heavy yeah. lifting. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, what is it? They, they say success has many fathers, like failure has, you know, none or maybe one. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have been, it's very funny because even just, one of my bigger, bigger signings that I had at another company, that was my signing, and I'm not there anymore, but I love when their press releases are going around, second, and I signed so-and-so, I'm like, oh, of course you did, and it's fine, I mean, if, if, this, if this job was about the credit, I wouldn't do it, because very rarely do, you, you know, you know, your writer knows, your, you know, the, the people that matter know. But, well, yeah. it, it on a career level, it's important that people know, but even that eventually leaks out to the people in the inner circle of the industry. They know. I mean, we've all seen the classic scenario where like, you know, a, a 21 year old scout at a label is like the lowest form of A&R life and they hit the street every night and they find an act that's absolutely undeniable. They bring it into the A&R manager who's a notch above them. A&R manager walks down the hall and plays it for a director of A&R who's a notch above them to see what they think about it. So now if the director of A&R likes it, the A&R manager's feeling pretty good that they found it, even though it was the kid in the mailroom or something. And then the director of A&R plays it for the VP of A&R, and the VP of A&R has the director of A&R bring it into the weekly meeting and play it, and the VP of A&R acts like he or she found it, and the poor kid in the mailroom just has to eat it. It sucks. Oh, that happens all the time. I didn't, I've never let that happen. Um, <laughs> You're spunky. You know, like, well, I, well, well, even when things have been brought to me before, you know, like I've had, um, I had an, like an intern who is now, you know, a, senior vice president at, of A&R at a, at a major label, but he was my intern when I worked at BMG and he, wow. he would say some really good stuff. And um, I would say, you know, I don't want to say his name, but so-and-so brought me this writer. I think this is amazing. And, you know, I went on to help him, you know, get jobs and you know, he, it, 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 so it's important, but it's, it's true. It's not done enough. People want everybody, you know, they take the credit, but he's yeah. doing well. You know, Great. Eventually, cream rises. So I have personally observed once again. This is a Michael thing. Maybe it's just me noticing this, but 
Clearly, song structures have changed over the years. Um, it, it's been kind of a slow evolution, and now it appears to me that the big bombastic choruses that were such a thing, you know, like people like Diane Warren, um, Carol Bear Sager, Kara, Dr. Luke, Esther Dean, they wrote songs, boom. I mean, you knew when that chorus hit you in the face and kicked you in the butt. And now I hear these choruses, they're kind of delicate. They're almost more of a refrain. The chorus is just a line that ends a thought which was in the verse. Um, I personally don't love it, although I still hear some songs that just are, are great and they use that approach. Do you think that this is a permanent state of song form or do you think it'll go back to the big bombastic chorus at some point? It, it'll go back because it's not, it's not ever totally gone. I mean, I yeah. think it's almost like how, you know, different genres become popular, um, whether it was, you know, we had rock and then it's pop and then pop becomes a dirty word and it's alternative. And um, so, no, <laughs> I, I don't think that that'll ever completely go away. And, you know, I, I definitely think some of those more alternative leaning artists can pull that off and, and they're cool, but everybody wants a big ass hook they can sing back to. And whether it's a rock song or an alternative song or a pop song or an R&B song. So no, I mean, I certainly would never tell any of my writers, like, don't have a big chorus. I would never say that. Right. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to have a free chorus necessarily. Um, you can do like little things, but I don't think that's never gonna go away. It's funny how Ear Candy, which is largely the producer's job, has replaced the, the pre-chorus to some extent. Um, and, and you and I are probably both equally brokenhearted. The bridges are not as prevalent as they used to be. I mean, nothing better than a great bridge. It just, you know, brings it all home. It's, uh, I miss it. It's a moment in a song. And that's why, that's a lot of like what I tell my writers. And, and I think that's important in production and that's, that's important in songwriting. It's like those moments. You know, I, I always feel like the bridge is like such a moment. Yeah. Um, that so when there's not a bridge and it's just some like weird breakdown, the breakdown better be very cool. But yeah, I know I love me a bridge. So I, I think that song structure is still important. Um, there are always going to be those ones that slip through and they're very cool and they'll do really well. But I don't think that's going to ever replace a big old hit. I hope not. Uh, I love a big chorus. Um, I do miss rock. It seems like rock is trying for a bit of a comeback right now. And I do love, I, I, I still don't know the difference. I can't, I can get it right 75% of the time. The difference between like indie pop and indie pop rock, the areas or the genres are so gray areas now. Um, but I mean, like, I, I never would have picked 21 Pilots, and what they did was, was, like, you know, after you listen to the third 21 Pilots song, you go, wow, a lot of credit. They're doing something really different, and it does it is commercial, but it's not what you would classically think of as a hit-driven act. Um, and I, I do love the fact people say, oh, there's nothing good on radio right now. Well, maybe you're listening to the wrong station. Um, Spotify has a really wide range of interesting genres and fresh acts out there that Absolutely. old farts like us listen to and go, that's a hit. Absolutely. And there's some like 
garbage on there too. But I don't understand why it has like five billion streams, but somebody five billion people liked it. So that's what's great about Spotify. Don't you love it? Uh, well, I don't know if you you might have been the person on the other side of the desk, but back when I would work with like a local indie artist. I'd finish up a record with Neil Young or somebody and then promise somebody locally I would spend a month with them in the studio and put together a really good set of demos for them. And then I would take it to New York on my next trip and I would go meet with like Stewie Fine or somebody, you know, at a label and they go, it's it's good, but here, this is what I just signed last week. And they play you something that just absolutely sucks and you're sitting there thinking in your head, that stuff sucks and you can't say anything. Or they play your your artist or your song on like volume two. Right. And then they're like, oh, let me play you mine. And then it's on like eight, nine, ten. You know, the volume is so high. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you're yours, you're mine. Everything sounds great on 11. Yeah, um, exactly. Okay, so. Uh, oh, this is a good question. You'll remember from your days at Taxi that a fair number of our members will submit music that you would listen to. You and I would have these discussions sitting right where I am at my desk right now with you on the other side. And we would talk about this song would have been a hit 15 years ago. Everything yeah. about it works, but it sounds dated. Um, and, and people have a hard time kind of moving out of that era that they grew up loving music in. That's what they absorb. That's what they write. Can you recommend some current songs or songwriters that people should listen to, force feed themselves this new stuff so that they can become more current? Uh, well, I always honestly say, you know, um, go listen to the, you know, top 10 billboard, you know, Hot 100 or 20. You know, um, New Music Friday. I look at a lot of New Music Friday is like completely garbage, but um, listen to the artists that are actually streaming really well and doing well. Um, I think you have the only way you could stay current is if you hear what is currently out. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think for look in the same way that I don't I don't get a a lot of the music that's out and but I go to my kids and I'm like is this cool like do you like this or I say what do you guys listen to and sometimes I totally don't get it but I also think you know it's not a bad idea if you're not a young writer to collaborate with somebody who's a different generation than you are that can help sort of bring that to your session and um and you know, make it more current, become more more modern. Yeah, that's a word that I hear all the time. Like you know, it's just modern. So um, that's really what I would would say is just to make yourself aware. Listen to the radio. It's amazing how many songwriters don't even listen to the radio. I'm like, well, then right. I hate what's out there today, so I don't listen. Well, you know, you can't play golf on the tour if you don't know what the other guys are hitting. Exactly. Exactly. You can't do your job if you don't know, you know. Um, so that's really important is to be doing your, that's your research, you know, and just spin through New Music Friday every Friday, you know, go to the, you know, go to the charts and see. And just, you know, you can just verse chorus if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, just to get an idea. Yeah. Of what's going on. Um, something you and I both heard, I, I almost 
didn't put this question on the list, but we've heard it thousands of times, especially here at Taxi. Um, why didn't you guys forward my stuff? The screener said it was so close. Why didn't you forward it to the label or to the music supervisor or whomever the you know intended recipient would be if it's so close? Why didn't you send it to them? I know better than to send you stuff. We're good friends. I would never send you something and go, it's pretty close. What do you think? Because you're going to go like, Lasco, I love you, but you just wasted five minutes of my time. Um, why should they... Why would anybody listen to It's Pretty Darn Close? Yeah, that's hard. I think also because, you know, people have to remember I'm one of many pitching songs to these A&R people or these managers or these artists. So I personally have a lot of competition. So if I'm asking for three minutes and 20 seconds, or if I even get that far, you know, it can't just kind of be close. I think when you're an established writer and you have good bones of a song, then you can bring it to the A&R person and be like, hey, you know, does Adam Levine want to jump on this? But um, until you get to that level, you can't, it can't really be close. And I know that a lot of screeners were very frustrated, not screeners, a lot of members were very frustrated when I was there because yeah. I had to, I, you know, would not forward too many things but anything i ever forwarded i got a, i got very high compliments on because and they would that's why a and r people listen to my songs when i pitch them but right. you know yeah clive davis was the one when i first became a publisher at rondor i did that i would send good songs and back then like arista had this you know uh, the scale, they went one to seven or one to eight, I think it was. And um, and if you had to get a 7.5 and above in order for it to go to Wow. Yeah, and so I just kept sending, oh, this is a good song, this is a good song. And um, there was somebody like named Michael Barrickman and Keith Napoli, all those guys back then, and they called me and said, look, you're a good publisher, like you have good ears but we need you to be more selective in what you send to us. You know, I don't want you to send us good songs. I want you to only, if it's great, send it. And that was like a ding, 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 ding. A lot of bells went off. And I said, well, you know, that was such a valuable lesson that they took the time to teach me as a young publisher. And so I never sent anything that was just good again. Now I had some pretty smart writers and producers over the years that they send me a song that's good and I say hey you know what this is good but it could be great so why don't you go back in and rework that hook a little bit um the lyric over here is not so you know and maybe beef up your track and let's make it great um because just because a song is good doesn't mean it doesn't have the potential to be great but I can't just pitch something good going back to the golf analogy the PGA Tour is not looking for golfers that are shooting the same scores as the guys in the top 10. They're looking for the golfers that'll shoot a better score than the guy who's the number one. Exactly. What? Oh, the sunlight. <laughs> well, look at this. You're getting a tan while you're being interviewed. Um, 
All right, I'm going to save my last question for a little bit from now. And by the way, I want to mention that I saw somewhere reading about you or your dad that your dad actually is on a list that Billboard has of the top 100 producers in the industry. And yeah. I got to say, even I got a little bit of a, you know, I, mean, I can't say that I burst into tears, but, you know, I love your dad. He's a cool guy. And it's like, wow, you know, yeah. that's a really I'm cool so thing. grateful to my father because he, um, he was the best teacher, you know, that I ever had, really. Yeah. Yeah. Tough but loving. <laughs> Tough, yeah. Tough but loving. <laughs> All right. Um, let's take, we've got 10 minutes left. Let's take a couple questions. Um, here's one from Nancy Collell. She says, Miss Torsha, would you please define ear candy? Like, you know how when you eat candy, it's really sweet and makes you feel good? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, you're like, woo, that sounded really good. Um, I don't know. Ear candy could could be a it could be an ad lib, it could be a harmony, it could be a baseline. Like I don't know. I mean, it could just be like a a bridge that you just weren't expecting. So you know, I think ear candy is back to like just those moments that make you like yeah. Oh, that Anything that catches your ear in a way that elevates the song. Exactly. And you know it. it it could be a production lick, or it could be the way the vocalist just bends a note to yeah. go up oh, to the next octave or something. That's really what gets me, you know, is when, you know, even like sometimes on like the second or third chorus, like they just like change the melody in a line, you know? Yeah. I love that, you know? It's just, it's, you just have to, you just have to make it special, you know? Just, you have to take listeners on a journey anything that truly most anything i've ever signed is because i i i felt something you know of course there are those signings that as a publisher you come across where you're like well they have you know about 25 incoming you know cuts coming in so this is a good business decision mm -hmm. but i you know i don't do that so often for me it's like if, if you like move me in some way it's almost like when i heard the attire when i heard greg and steven um I, I heard those melodies and I just, uh, something like moved through my soul. I mean, I went like ballistic. They already had, they were in long form at Sony, LA Reed was signing over here. And I was like, I have to have them. Wow. Um, yeah, because I just, it moved me in such a way. So I think that's really kind of what ear candy is. It just, you moves, yeah, you know. I, I don't remember ever seeing you so excited about anybody as you are about those guys. So I'm really glad that you found them. It's like yeah. a new love, you know? It's like... Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. You know, and it's been a long labor of love, but it's it's worth it. Because truly anybody that has heard them has been like, holy shit. Um, yeah. But still, it's it's taken a while because even though someone thinks they're great, but like, oh, but their socials aren't this or they don't have, you know? So it's, it's, it's back to that where it's been just a lot of really building and building and building and marketing and... You know, even with the guys having a deal, I mean, they're they're shooting socials every single day. They're writing every single day. They're nobody's taking a break. Yeah. Because of the deal, you know. Yeah, they always say they in quotes always say the hard work begins when you sign the deal. Oh, yeah, 
and that's when like any insecurity actually comes up is once you sign that deal because you know now you've got people who are giving you money and you know expecting you know so that's like a lot of pressure yeah that's a lot of times when you weed out who's got it and who doesn't is when they have that kind of pressure and they still you know can function and and um you know and overcome and continue writing hits and look at so not every song is going to be a hit, but you have to then write another one. That's what I say. Absolutely. So. Yeah, there's always another one. And it yeah. probably will be better than last because you're more experienced than you were when you wrote that one. Exactly. Um, somebody just asked a question. Do you suggest that an artist start a publishing company? And if so, what are the benefits? I just want to say Andrea is more of a creative person, not not necessarily a, a, a business person, although she certainly knows the industry like the back of her hands. So I don't know if that's a question you even want to take. I mean, if you're like, if you're an independent artist and you don't, you're new and you don't have any, you know, pipeline or I don't know, I don't think it's really necessary. I think that, um, I, I think it's, you know, it's smart to make sure that you're affiliated and that you have a publishing resume because you, until you sign a publishing company, you sort of own your own publishing. Right. Um, I know there's a lot of like, yeah, I think Diane Warren sort of always kept her own publishing and they, she just did like an admin deal. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's necessary. I think as you, as you, you know, continue on in your career, you could, if you wanted to, and or just have a company administer you, but I don't know. I don't think that that's like the top thing to be thinking about. I agree. Uh, especially yeah. when you don't have any leverage. It's like, yeah. you know, you almost have to take the deal that's presented to you in the beginning, unless you're that one in literally a million that writes a song that's so good that people will fall on a sword to get it. I know everybody thinks their song is that good, but you know, I've been in the industry for over 40 years and I've only seen that happen like twice, maybe. Yeah. Um, Christoph Scott wants to know if you can be here every Monday. I would actually. I love hanging out with you. Andrea and I hadn't seen each other in years, and we got together for a brunch about, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago or something. And it was literally like we saw each other at work yesterday. I mean, I we've always I been very comfortable. Um, and I can't believe your kids are so grown up. I mean, I know. It's like, boom, goes like that, doesn't it? We had an agreement. They weren't supposed to like grow up past like five and seven and nobody could think. Yeah. I know. We've got a five-year-old granddaughter and a five-year-old grandson. And it's just like, I can remember when they were squirmy little babies coming home from the hospital. And now they're like going off to school with a little backpack and cute sneakers. It just goes by so fast. My daughter just got her driver's license, so like everybody, you know, I can't tell you where I live, but be careful. Yeah, I know your exit, and I take that one sometimes. Apparently, out there. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm trying to see if there's one more question. We've got three minutes left. Uh, Paul Anthony Land wants to know if you have a social media account that he can follow you on. Stalker. I'm really like so boring. Um, I really just like post about my kids and work stuff. But yeah, I think I'm like Andrea.Porsha. You can find me on Instagram. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Pictures of the kids and the puppies. <laughs> um, 
question. Michael, can you please... Can you please thank Miss Torship for deciding to come on Taxi? <laughs> thank you, Andrea. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, Andrea is just... She's my female Rob Shirelli. We could literally just hang out and talk endlessly, and it would... Yeah. Interesting to us, at least. Um, yeah. Any predictions for genres or styles or anything we should look for coming down the pike as far as new music? You know, I think it's going to, things are going to continue being a little more what I just like indie pop. But I do think like pop is making its like comeback. Um, I think people are getting a little tired of the, you know, four minute songs with no chorus. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think what's great is there is so much diversity and because people can, you know, release their music independently that there's always going to be a wide variety to choose from. I think the female singer songwriter, the male singer songwriter, I just think, you know, lyric and melody, melody, everybody, melody, melodies. You know, melody is where it captures people's hearts, truly. So I don't know if I think there's going to be like a particular genre. I know rock is trying to make a comeback. I know like, you know, rap is not going away. Um, urban music is super big. Um, but I just think, you know, a great song will always, you know, make it. Make it. Oh, somebody just called you a rock star guest. Uh, just like Robin Frederick. <laughs> yeah, Robin loves you. Robin was so happy. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I hired you to come to work here, Robin was like delighted that you were coming here. Um, so anyway, yeah, a couple people have asked if you'll be joining us for the road rally. So I'm going to publicly say she's certainly invited. Um, I would... You know, any excuse to hang out with Andrea is a good excuse as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, try and keep your... I to do this, so I, I, I survived. Um, <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> I would do that. You didn't only survive, you did great. I mean, wow. seriously, I, I think you imparted a lot of, of very authentic wisdom, you know? I mean, I know you are not somebody to put on airs and not sling the BS like some people in our industry do. And that's why I was glad that you said yes. So thank you, you were a great guest. Um, I will reach out to you. Please hold the weekend of November 5th, 6th and 7th for the road rally. And you guys in the audience, I wanna let you know, I am not doing a quarantine happy hour tomorrow because I really need the time to work on the road rally. I will be back on Thursday at four o'clock right here, same channel. If you like today's show, please give us a thumbs up. If you're not a subscriber, hit that red button. <laughs> Andrea, I adore you. Thank you so much for doing this. It was great. Keep writing, don't give up, believe in yourself, work hard. Thanks, Andrea. Say hi to the kids. Hi. Ha <laughs> ha